Hello and welcome to God. Oh, you thought that that hello was specifically for you. We have a verbatim had that exchange on like three to four episodes. We do the same thing every single week, and it's <laughs> shocking that literally anyone listens. There aren't that many of you if we have the analytics, but if you are a listener, have you? Do we ever get email? I, I feel looked like recently um, because every time I'm writing the episode description to be like email at us, um, I'm always like, hope no one's emailed us. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did look recently, and we have not received any emails uh, relevant to the podcast. But so, I've got some new pills I'm pretty excited to try. <laughs> <laughs> oh, happy April, everyone. <laughs> We're not recording this in April, don't worry. Uh, we have used up all of our lead time, so now, <laughs> now instead of things being recorded six months in advance, it's going to be like, did you see the game hours. last night? Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, this has got the runs, the podcast with all the sexual chemistry of, I couldn't think of one because this book is just mostly about people who genuinely have sexual chemistry <laughs> with each other. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I guess they're like some swords. Uh, There's a uh, lot of like flip phones in this. A prep cook and uh, the people who order dinner five minutes before close. Sure. That did make me laugh when the green beans went splat. <laughs> There's, well, we'll get into it. Volume six is quite funny. <laughs> Volume five, not funny. <laughs> you don't think? No, I mean, it's just quite dark. Doer, as someone once said it was pronounced, but now I'm yeah, thinking I don't that, that wasn't it. true. <laughs> it's actually dour. Anyways, this has got the runs. We are covering the work of Brian Lee O'Malley. Specifically, we are covering... Uh, volumes five and six of the comic Scott Pilgrim. It, they are called Scott Pilgrim versus the Universe and Scott Pilgrim's Finest Hour. They are, you know, Brian Lee O'Malley wrote them. He did the art, colored by mm-hmm. Nathan Fairbairn. Although there's some uh, art assistants in volume six as well. Yes, I was reading about this because in the last volume in the color version, Nathan Fairbairn sort of goes through his whole coloring process which Mm -hmm. is pretty interesting we can talk about that at a future time um but yeah the third and final for us episode on scott pilgrim what a long strange trip it's been (laughs) (laughs) i just really like saying that Uh, uh do we want to stay start with the plot summary since we're already you know on to episode three of this hopefully you've listened to the first two episodes and have a little bit of context here sure hit it oh it's me um you (laughs) okay so it's scott's 24th birthday very (laughs) troubling to think about Mm -hmm. um i feel like when you're young 24 seems old and this is a completely pointless observation (laughs) the clock has started i must remind you (laughs) (laughs) so sex bobom is still recording their album scott has turned 24 there are some like i wouldn't even say relationship problems between him and ramona but just like some existential questions that have sort of started to propagate and then the the twins the kudanagi twins is that what their name is ken and kyle 
uh they show up they have they're like roboticists and they keep like summoning robots to fight scott Mm -hmm. in the background (laughs) yes mostly in the background while other people have like other conversations this glow thing that ramona has is still around uh and then she eventually leaves and then he fights the twins he beats the twins and then like basically they like ramona leaves and like really leaves scott like sinks into a depression for several months Mm -hmm. he moves into a new apartment uh kim moves back north and then do we we want to get into volume six as well oh yeah (laughs) the whole shebang and then in volume six it's like he continues to be depressed uh, oh yeah. Also, he like has a brother. We should talk about. <laughs> should talk about doesn't he have a different last name? West. I have. Yeah, I have intel on this. But yes, he's introduced as Lawrence West. West is his middle name. Oh, I see. Well, anyways, fascinating stuff. Um, and then Volume Six is mostly just like <laughs> Scott making amends, basically, with all of like the women he has hurt in his life. Step nine. Yes sure (laughs) absolutely (laughs) uh thank you for not derailing my train of thought um this eventually results in he he meets up with kim and then like sort of gets his mojo back he fights mega scott and sort of like accepts him and then he goes back to toronto to the chaos theater where he fights gideon and pretty much he wins it's like the upshot of it there's <laughs> yeah. a lot more internal over the, over the course of like 65 pages he wins <laughs> yeah there's some other internal uh, development that takes place over the course of that but basically ramota comes back he beats gideon they get back together and decide to proceed with their relationship and i you know, did I'll, just uh, accidentally google scrote <laughs> scrote pilgrim that's right sure it sounds like those things you got the emails about <laughs> scrote pill brackets graham <laughs> i googled that because negascott came up and this reminded me of the people also ask box on google when you google scott pilgrim which is hilarious <laughs> Because question number one, is Scott Pilgrim a schizophrenic? Let's open up Google's auto-generated answer. That's what makes Scott Pilgrim a fizzy, defiantly schizophrenic semi-delight. Oh. <laughs> a review of Scott Pilgrim. Second question, are there two versions of Scott Pilgrim? There were two alternate ending possibilities for the film. <laughs> the original I was going to say, it's like black and white in color. <laughs> Book and movie. What was the point of Scott Pilgrim? He falls in love with an American delivery girl, but must defeat her seven evil exes in order to date her in peace. It seems like the ending caused a lot of confusion for people is kind of what I'm getting at. (laughs) But also (laughs) the Google's attempts to help them navigate uh, those questions uh, are very funny to me. Yeah, I'm sure there's like a Scott Pilgrim ending explained uh, type beat and this is this is a game of thrones situation right where the movie was being made before the book was totally finished yes he had to like finish volume six so that edgar wright like had an ending <laughs> right and it's not quite that it has a lot of similar elements but i think there are some like pretty notable departures i would argue for the better in the book i agree where do we want to start here Well, it's hard to, uh, we might as well just kind of talk about it all together because as I was reading it, I was sort of like, this really is like one volume split into two because it's so long. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very, it's especially like, it's, I feel like it's a very classic like series thing 
where well especially with trilogies where you have like the first movie that kind of stands on its own and then the second and the third movie are really just one extended story that Mm -hmm. is like sort of like concluding the story and that's what this feels like more than anything is like i'm not sure if he knew exactly if this was how he like where he wanted to go with it but like it is like a pretty marked departure where like you're sort of forced to reevaluate a lot of what you saw in like the first four books because like they're that's not to say that the first four books are like totally happy-go-lucky because they definitely aren't no. but i feel like but volume five you... is like quite like it's like stressful to read because everyone is like so angry and like miserable the whole time yeah i i almost find volume i forget which volume it is i think three more stressful where it's just like I'm unhappy and like can't really verbalize it versus this one where it's like I'm angry for a specific reason and it's like time for you to atone for that. Well, it's like it's it is I'm angry for a specific reason, but it's all like I feel like the scene that like best sort of encapsulates it is when like Ramona and young Neil have that like weird conversation where he just is like kind of a dick and she's sort of like you're a dick and he's kind of like. <laughs> I'm just like <laughs> it it is representative of the extent to which like everyone all all of our like characters are all so miserable and unhappy that like they can't interact with even like random people with whom like have we ever seen Ramona and young Neil have a conversation about anything I do not believe so but they're both just like so unhappy that like coming into each other's orbit at all causes like minor conflict but it's like the whole book is like that right there's there's a very funny moment where in the last part where scott introduces stacy to young neil Hmm. and he's like wait you guys haven't met which i feel like (laughs) is a very like funny thing especially with like an ensemble cast like this where it's like oh like these characters have just never interacted with each other but yeah yeah i mean there's so much going on I think the main thing, like, especially throughout volume five is like, like I was saying, it doesn't really force you. It's not like it like suddenly takes a turn and is dark all of a sudden, but it does take a turn in terms of forcing you to like really reckon with and evaluate the character of Scott. Yeah, definitely. The theme of books five and six is Scott sucks. (laughs) Sure. Which, like, not to, I mean, we've talked kind of from the beginning about how, like, the, the signs of this have always been there, but they are just presented in a way that's very, like, kind of charming and endearing and, like, uh, adorably stupid, <laughs> if, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Whereas this book, yeah, like, volume six in particular, I think when Kim sort of, like, tells her version of their their high school experience is the section that really like kind of lays things bare but i think that the knives's realization about scott's cheating as well is like a big part of that and like i guess like steven stills also has that section where like he gives his perspective on it and it's like hmm right that uh, does suck right yeah i and like yeah, it's interesting because it's like we've always known that Scott sucks, but I guess like I guess it's more is it more about sort of circumstances forcing Scott to confront his own like behavior because like to you know a lot of the joke a lot of the times is like Steven and Kim especially are like we understand that Scott sucks, 
and like have obviously like we're friends with him so like it is what it is and we've sort of accepted this whereas and and i guess ramona too to some extent but that and mainly it's about like scott having to realize that like he is not innocent in all of like oh his yeah. trials yeah i definitely don't think that anyone other than scott is realizing for the first time that his behavior is not always acceptable or well, like productive yeah well i get yeah knives too to an extent um because i guess i, I almost this... i almost feel like the way that knives sees scott is like the way scott sees scott to some extent where it's mm-hmm. like she is like as charmed with scott as scott is with himself and so her perspective is sort of like Scott's perspective where it's like if something bad happened it was because someone else like was bad or like manipulated me and that's what like caused me to turn right part of her appeal is that she lets him believe at some level that he like is who he thinks he is and not the person who his friends are kind of trying to tell him that he is (laughs) right she like idealizes him in the same way that he does right Yes. Um, but yeah, this, this book is very much about sort of like opening us us up to the broader perspective of the people around him and turning it from like, it's not, uh, he's, he, this, thus far he has sucked in a way that's kind of like, oh, you, and then we start to see a bit more clearly now that like when other people are not in a place where they can sort of like emotionally, carry through like or or i guess like choose to set those things aside that like it becomes a lot less like charming and amusing (laughs) yeah that's a good point that it's like to some extent it is like other people have their are like have it more together than scott because like the biggest example of that is wallace right where it's like wallace basically like (laughs) pays the rent and like Mm -hmm. owns all the stuff and like basically is just like allowing (laughs) scott to stay in his apartment more or less and yeah like that that's sort of like indicative of like the way that scott sort of lives where it's like because other people are more like emotionally competent than he is then like he can sort of just afford to do whatever he wants but then you have stuff like kim moving back to up north (laughs) vaguely up north Mm -hmm. and like sex bob um like more or less breaking up and then that sort of like is what forces him to realize that like there's something going on outside of himself basically yeah and and like for what it's worth wallace is sort of the one character who we never see like really turn on scott he he has in some ways always been the one to whom like kim has always sort of like ragged on him but he's just sort of like impervious not that he like listens to wallace per se but he has always seemed sort of like more able to like receive difficult truth from wallace Um, and at the same time wallace is also the one person who kind of like never uh, as as much as he's willing to sort of like give that feedback he doesn't actually like expect more of scott per se like he remains even throughout like these books where it's like his sort of deepest depressive uh his his dark nights of the soul mm-hmm. um wallace remains the person who is always just sort of like mostly focused on kind of like cheering him up and being like a support and is still like treating it like buying him meals and letting him stay at his place and like you know is is very sort of low barrier in terms of what uh he asks of scott um and we never really see him like pushed outside of what he's willing to do in that regard yeah, and I think that that's also sort of, like, to some extent why 
his character got sidelined a little bit in the mm-hmm. last couple of volumes because it's like, well, to some extent, Wallace is representative of like the enabling of Scott's like typical behavior, and so mm-hmm. like he, he Wallace can't really make Scott like like you said like he can't make him accept the hard truths. He can maybe deliver them, but like he needs like a Kim or a Stephen Stills to actually force him to like reckon with the actual reality of things. Yeah, volume five, just highly stressful. It's funny the extent to which, like, in volume five, he seems to have, like, completely lost interest in the evil X, like, side of things to a certain degree. Like, Well, that's that's also why it feels like it's, like, these, like, the last two books are, like, the real story. It's, like, like the Deathly Hallows is another good example mm-hmm. where it's, like, <laughs> and now... Also, like, let's just say J.K. Rowling, great person. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think she's uncomplicated and uh, easy to embrace, and I'm never going to change my mind. <laughs> this was recorded in, like, 2010. <laughs> <laughs> she taught me how to be a good person. Sure. But, like, like the introduction of the Deathly Hallows in, in the seven. Deathly Hallows book <laughs> is a good example, because it's like... This is it's like now the whole thing was yeah. always about this. By the way, the invisibility cloak is important. <laughs> <laughs> right. And like that's, you know, it doesn't quite retcon to that degree. And like, you know, it still is about the evil exes to some extent. But like that stuff, like you said, like in book five, especially like it mostly takes place in the background. Like it's it, he's he's literally just like fighting the robots in the background while Kim and Ramona have conversations about like their emotional state and relationships. Yeah, but also weirdly, like his final fight with them is like the most like thematically linked maybe that one of these fights has been up to this point. In terms of like how he needs to like... uh believe in the power of love to uh yeah to pretty much that's or pretty be, much like, what motivated it is. by uh that he needs to sort of like reaffirm his love for ramona in order to like make that happen yeah but even that it feels sort of like a segue into the next volume because the affirmation that he gets is something that kim is just like making up to like help him win the fight yeah and like and i think that a big part of what these two books are about is that like you can't really just like rely on maybe maybe I'm reading into it a little too much, but like that you can't really rely on like these like bombastic declarations of love that like involve a giant fight scene in order to like sustain a relationship. Yep. <laughs> Sorry, I'm I'm thinking uh about just like Kim's whole sort of arc through through these and how bad it probably sucks for her to be like, save me, and that's like not enough. And so instead she has to be like, Ugh, like Ramona says, yeah, save Ramona. me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kim is like extremely hard done by throughout all of these. And I think like, I think he recognizes that. And I think he is like most sympathetic to Kim in a lot of ways. Like Kim is the one, it's funny because like Kim is the most like, overtly like surface level caustic mm-hmm. but then is also like the one who is the least deserving of like <laughs> right, any like, ill will possibly cares more about scott than anyone else in the book <laughs> oh definitely i think and i think like it's interesting because like i i'm sort of i wouldn't even say i'm of two minds but i think that like he doesn't really think too much about like his the female characters as much as he should maybe like in 
they they're mostly have roles in these books like as they relate to scott and so like you know even though they are like giving scott some sort of harsh realities where it's like you like did me wrong you were not as like great of a person as you thought you were they are still sort of mostly defined around their relationships with scott Mm -hmm. but i also think that he can be really effective like i mean like i think lost at sea showed us right from the beginning that like he can be effective at giving female characters like dimension and internality and i think that he does do a lot of that for kim but then i guess at the end of the day like the book is about scott and it ultimately has to like go back to the way that people relate to scott because he's in most of the scenes mostly Mm -hmm. yeah i i feel like if there's a way that i feel that he like most does um sort of wrong by the female characters and especially by kim is to like have that line where Gideon sort of like suggests that like he is the reason that Scott's memories are messed up or at least like more messed up. He he says like he's been spying on their relationship through Scott's head and then sort of alludes to manipulating his memories of high school, which I'm just like, that's like, let's let's cut that. (laughs) I don't think that adds anything uh, or like explains anything. And it and it takes like, away a little bit, obviously, yeah. from like his own responsibility. Yeah, and the development that we've just spent, like t- really the whole series, but especially the past two volumes, mm-hmm. um, sort of building towards. Yeah, I mean, I think if there is a character that is maybe a little bit hard done by, it might be Envy, because like she is sort of, she is depicted as like, sort of like. I was turned into a monster a little bit. Mm -hmm. We never, like, we never, everyone else sort of gets their opportunity to be like, no, Scott, it wasn't like this, it was like this. But in hers, which, like, she does get her sort of moment there, but we never actually, like, come to understand what happened other than for her to say, like, it's not how you remember it being. Yeah. And also, I think, like, she is sort of depicted as being, like, I'm, uh, she's, like, unhappy with what she has become, and like hold Scott responsible for that, which I, I think that if it was made nowadays, it maybe she maybe wouldn't like it wouldn't lean into like the fact that she is like <laughs> corrupted and is therefore <laughs> like gone from being a nerd to being sexy. Right. I don't like it. Yeah, I think that that is sort of like those are just sort of the tropes that he's leaning on to suggest uh, a different or like deeper change. But because those are sort of the things that are uh, put really at the front and center for her, it's like hard to say exactly what those things are. But I do think like there's a, there's a suggestion of a lot more, particularly when she sort of talks about sort of the root of some of her frustration with Scott or some of her anger at Scott being that he's the only person who like really knows what she was like before she became famous, which, which is still like, you know, if you sort of look past the um, heightened like monsterization element, just that uh, like looking back and not necessarily being like, I hate who I am now. I wish I was like I was then. And more so just sort of being like, that was like a nice time and it's like too bad that like it it's never really going to be like that again and no one is ever like going to know that person yeah but i mean i think that does sort of suggest a certain level of like 
wistfulness for when I was more innocent a little bit. And I also think that like, yeah, but I, I so think much that's bo- like connected more so to the, the sort of like second coming of age that is sort of the theme, like, or the, the running line through the whole book as it is, as opposed to being the, like the, the, the horror and the Madonna sort of like dichotomy specifically. Yeah, but I also do think that, like, to some extent, because so much of the book is about, like, your memories aren't as, like, great as you thought they were. And, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. it doesn't really get into that, like, that whole idea where it's, like, high school wasn't actually, like, that amazing and, like, college wasn't actually that amazing. It doesn't really dive into that all that much, but that is, like, some of the sense you get. And so to have, then, that character be more, like, expressive of, like we like we lost something when we became adults <laughs> is like i i feel like it just doesn't quite jive with everything else right yeah that makes sense i mean i i sort of like the the at least i like the part where she is able to sort of come back and and remind scott that he's not uh the hero of every single story but it also is kind of undercut then by having her <laughs> go and be like the like songstress at gideon's club <laughs> Yeah, and, like, his lover, even though, like, she's not really necessarily. But, yeah, I think that that sort of, it's the opposite of that, or the flip side of that is sort of exemplified in Kim later, like, because it's, like, when he kisses Kim, it's sort of, in the same way that we have talked about a few times, it sort of represents that regression or that desire for a relationship that's, like, uncomplicated he i think he says that word uncomplicated where it's like less i guess less a a regression to who he was and more a regression of like how he is treated by other people where it's like with kim i can just be an asshole and like she will just like be mean back to me and like that will be our relationship and like that's fun whereas and then like he sort of has to confront the nega scott and then be like being oblivious of your own like badness is not really like the answer to that problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that like a part of it as well is that he he basically just like needs to be in a relationship and he doesn't actually care that much about like who specifically that is with because for for like whatever reason he's come to sort of define himself by his relationships and so we see him just sort of like repeatedly kind of like fall into these relationships with people who are drawn to him and his sort of himbo energy. And then when he proves like unable to maintain it because he doesn't actually care about the person as much as the relationship, then that's when things kind of fall apart. And he's like in this, this sort of uh, the desert that he so often dreams of um, after Ramona has left him (laughs) and, um, and he like tries to basically do the same thing with Kim and Kim is the, you know the one of the few people who's sort of savvy to him at this point and is able to say like this is not like the solution the solution is like you have to confront the nega scott which is of course just sort of like the externalization of the parts of himself that he doesn't like or doesn't want to have to confront and so like i think i think if after all of it like Ramona had not come back to him, he still would have been in a better place because he has like learned to live with himself. And I think that like kind of the, the place that that would have taken him is into one where he doesn't need to just be in a relationship. Like he's able to be kind of content with himself. Yeah. To some extent, certainly. And I think that that sort of 
it creates an interesting situation because I think that that partially causes Ramona's own sort of character development to feel a little bit tacked on to me because it's like they they like you could have an ending where they don't get back together and like that would be an okay way to end the book I think and you know you, like you could have like <laughs> like similar to what we see with like the Nega Scott in the movie where it's like they actually become friends and I think they, they like it alludes to this a little bit where like Gideon I guess he is just like ultimately evil, but he is basically <laughs> just like the Scott who like his got it like together. Yeah, without with, like who got without, it together. Like, yeah, from yeah. like a social and like professional side of things without doing yeah. the like emotional getting it together. Yeah, exactly. Where like he, you know, I think he, I guess he like ultimately is a bad guy, but it's like mm-hmm. he has the same issues as Scott, where it's like he is sort of like. Or maybe it's, is he, like, kind of the opposite of Scott? Because he sort of talks about the idea of, like, being inside his own head. And I get, which, like, you know, sort of implies having to, like, grapple with his own, like, insecurities and things like that. Uh, which is something that, you know, I don't think Scott has ever really had to do. <laughs> but in terms of sort of, like, believing or, like, seeing the world through, like, his sort of, like, warped perception of reality that is, like, beneficial to himself, I think is maybe a way in which they're similar. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and so, like, because sort of we've already seen Scott go through his personal development and then his, like, his sort of, like, role at the climax is just to accept Ramona and to, like, allow Ramona to see that, like, you don't have... She, do, she like, doesn't have to live the way she's living, which is, like similar in some ways to Scott where she is sort of trying to like run away from things that are potentially like emotionally problematic to her but is it I think it it does feel a little different right yeah yeah I uh, her her journey I ended up I was trying to kind of like think about it a bit before we started recording and mostly ended up being like what's up with her hair (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, I think I guess like in a lot of ways she is similar to Scott though in terms of like she mistreated guys and sort of like moved on and like left people emotionally damaged in her wake and didn't real and like didn't really completely acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. But I guess she is like I guess the difference is that she is aware of what she is doing and like that sort of causes her like self-loathing that she feels like she is like unable to like make these things work yeah i think like part of her journey seems to be like accepting that her evil exes aren't evil because of her and like that's not to say that she didn't do any any damage in the like process of all of their relationships and all of the leaving and like you know she says herself that like she has been like a not great person who has done not great things to to various people um but i think that whereas like scott's yeah scott's journey is towards accepting that like the reality that he has hurt people and learning how to like both make amends for that and to then subsequently forgive himself for those things ramona's journey is one towards like letting go of that the knowledge that she already holds about the the people that she's hurt and accepting that you know not everything is her responsibility and you know you can you can overstate your role in other people's lives just as much as you can understate it i guess 
Yeah, that makes sense. That they're sort of like two sides of the same the coin same to some extent. Coin. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and then the you know, but then you still have that final sequence. I, I was kind of surprised that that sort of showed up again. The Im- like the imagery of her like chained up on the throne mm-hmm. with Gideon. Like I mean, because because that is a big part of what's depicted at the end of the movie. And I was a little surprised to see it come back here because it feels a little bit out of place, maybe, with what we sort of see of her, like, journey. Like, it almost feels like this was written first, and then he sort of, like, came, he sort of, like, went back and, like, beefed up her own, like, self-actualization and her own, like, acknowledgement of, like, the the reality of the situation, I guess. Because, Mm -hmm. like, does it really make that much sense that like she has this like fixation on Gideon and why if so yeah well Gideon unfortunately just is underwritten which all of the exes like you know the other six exes it's not as big a deal because they're like the the villain of the week in a mm-hmm. like to a certain extent like they're there and you kind of know that they're here for like this volume and at the end Scott will beat them and then we'll get like the denouement where it, he sets up the next one um but because Gideon has mo like not he's been present since the beginning but not in a way that is like actually you know revealing anything about him so you have to do like you you only really have as much space as any of the other exes got but you're trying to establish this guy who is this like svengali figure who has like total dominance over ramona and seems to have total dominance over um envy as well and like just is this is this yeah this like puppeteer um Mm -hmm. who like an almost demonic figure um in the book but there's just like not enough space to like really explain like why is it that he has this hold over people i mean i guess we don't really get the explanation of why people seem so attached to scott either beyond sort of like he's charming you know um so that you know maybe that is a bit of a shortcoming for the book just that like there's not much space to explain what it is exactly that causes ramona to feel so connected to gideon either from his like you know laying out like what gideon's whole deal is or from like showing from ramona's perspective what exactly it is that makes her so uh, attached to him but i think that it's easier for me to overlook because the direction he pivots isn't like now i must break free of you it's for her to realize like this version of me that is like chained up and loving it is not like the totality of who i am dracula <laughs> huh dracula he was famously dead and loving it is that what you're talking about? that's what it seemed like you were alluding to <laughs> that is <laughs> that's not what i was alluding to but um she is chained up and loving it but um the the yeah hitting the like this is not this like core part of her identity such as like we've kind of been led to believe you know it's it's not like the dark secret of her truest self it's like a part of who she is but it it like no longer uh encapsulates her identity and like probably never did and so her rejection of that image of herself knowing that like it's it's not who she is 
it just makes it it's a it's a good image it's a strong kind of direction for her arc and it makes it easier for me to sort of push past the just sort of like base level confusion about like what exactly Gideon's whole deal is yeah and I think that that's a real problem in a lot of fiction is that like it will present a miss like I think the one of the biggest problems and maybe it's a bit of like the JJ Abrams mystery box thing that people talk about a lot but like presenting a mystery where like the truth of what the mystery is is just like it's like this it's like it's like Gideon like, he's like a pretty successful club promoter and he's taking his business international <laughs> <laughs> but just the idea that like it's not it's not like who Gideon is is like a twist it's like right. we're just getting an explanation of who right. Gideon is but if and you so, punt the explanation off for so long then you start to expect that like well there's got to be like a twist or it's got to be paying off something you know something else or adding like a new layer or new like kind of you know level to to all of this stuff but if it's just like uh, yeah and he's like another guy who uh was important to Ramona it's like yeah okay (laughs) like is that really different from what we knew kind of from like book one (laughs) yeah exactly and I think the other thing is that, like, I think we talked about this in the last episode, like, the idea of the evil exes, like, of having to depict the conflict between the evil exes in a battle, mm-hmm. sort of, it it reduces, like, some of the metaphor to some extent, because it's like, it, it's like, it, it shouldn't be about, like, the, I feel like the conclusion that, and it kind of gets there, but not really, but I feel like the conclusion that the book should come to is like oh like this should never have been about like killing my (laughs) ex-boyfriends they don't even really talk about that That, we can't spend more energy discussing whether or not the evil exes are actually dead well sure 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 but you know what i I mean like i will say a point in your favor is when he uses the extra life and comes back to life and the first thing you see is stacy on the phone being like sorry mom false alarm (laughs) that's a good bet extremely good just the notion of being like hey mom uh (laughs) So sorry to tell you this uh, scott just got stabbed through the chest at this nightclub yeah but i mean like certainly even if you're saying like they aren't like literally being killed like they are being defeated in a physical confrontation i think it's fair to say yes, yes certainly and so it's like i feel like the conclusion we should come to based on all of this because the whole thing is about like it's not about running from your past it's not about killing like if you can say like it's a metaphor like you're not killing the memory of your past relationships in order to progress to a new one you have to like embrace these memories and accept them in order to like grow as a person but then because you've set this up that it's about like this league of evil exes that you have to defeat then it's like we have to defeat gideon whereas i think what the real ending is is just like you're really sad, man. <laughs> like, well, and it's, it's like they all like he head fakes in that direction where he's like, "Yeah, they, they I understand sort of, you, Page Turn, and now I have to kill you." <laughs> yeah, and like, and the the fact that it's like, and I mean, like, sure, get him out of Ramona's life, like, cut mm-hmm. off contact, like, he there's clearly some some unhealthy attitudes <laughs> there, but yeah, like, the, I think the what it, the conclusion is is just like 
you're a sad guy. It's sad that you are like have this relationship with women that like you see women in this way. And like, I am capable of just accepting the fact that you're a bad guy and like cutting you out of my life and just like walking away more than I need to like destroy you. Well, yeah, but you know what Scott gets when he defeats the evil exes? Money? Big old pile of change. <laughs> but in this case, it falls all over the crowd. Do you think he it's got the all biggest that money? change yet. Well, I did. When I saw it was like $7 million, I was like, well, obviously he doesn't get that. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Because like, up until then, like the the uh, Ken and Kyle have the biggest payout up until that point, and they have like, like seventy five dollars each. No, seventy five. Thought it was seven thousand or seven hundred. Like, it's like seventy four and change and seventy five and change or something like that, and he gets sure. a two dollar bonus for the twin multiplier. <laughs> sure. I also another thing I want to talk about is like you really see how much like what like a weird time in like human history this occupied mm-hmm. because there's like a joke about an achievement being unlocked in book yeah, five and it's like yeah. wow when this book started like achievements weren't really a thing yeah and also like the fact that everyone uses flip phones is crazy but i feel like that sort of like sort of becomes a deliberate anachronism at some point because of how much people are using flip phones in books five and six specifically and like texting each other on t9 yeah because it's it would have been like what 2009 that he was working on it Mm -hmm. which is like i think we see some sketches in the background from like january 2010 i mean so okay (laughs) not to get back onto the steve jobs of it all but when was that press conference when he announced the iphone 2007 i believe the iphone came out in 2007 and therefore it came out in 2006 the or it was like early 07 maybe um, by by not to get back to the Steve Jobs of it all, do you mean talking about the IRAC? That, but also just like I can't I can't talk about keynote presentations anymore. But that's one of the They're best too ones. Good. I know I know that it is because he January two thousand seven. So long and driving home, and I can't talk about it. It's so it's so good, but I can't talk about it. But what I'm trying to find my way to here is that when I was in uh, I, I graduated from high school in 2009 and got my first phone that year and it was a, not like a flip phone t9 but it was like one of those blocks where you like slid it a up slide to like open with the a keyboard. keyboard yeah, yeah. so it's like uh, you know flip phones i definitely still knew a lot of people who had flip phones but like nokia like you but please open those are samsung shell Sure, yes. Those are Samsung's Nokia's don't like open and close. Um yeah, like yeah. Like not, I guess like maybe our not like mom flip, had flip that. phones, but like other versions of the slide where you like slid it up to reveal the numbers sure. or things like that. Like yeah. And, and but I, I mean, feel like I guess we were is... in like that generation and like Blackberries. Like yeah. the first phone I had, which was I think twenty ten, was like a faux Blackberry where it was right. like a screen and then it had like the full tiny keyboard underneath. Right. Yeah, and I mean, like we are, or like you were saying, it was um, in universe. It's like two thousand four, two thousand five, right? So, yeah, I was curious about like how much of a time skip they. Would try. I think it's like it's like four months or something that he mm-hmm. like has his depressive era. And of course, he obeyed the uh, Shonen Shish Kebab and had his hero be defeated and go to the uh, top of a mountain to train. Sure, more or less. 
what do oh i mean i could talk about the dundas street coach terminal very sad <laughs> to see it depicted so frequently in this uh in this book it has since closed <laughs> r.i.p pour one out truly i don't even know i guess at union station is where i'm supposed to catch buses now uh oh, wait, at any rate, recently within the last year or two yeah oh. like i used to go there to like get greyhounds between toronto and london right. and now it is not a thing anymore the because i think greyhound is not a thing anymore <laughs> kind of yeah didn't greyhound like go out of business in canada or something i mean they were managing a pr disaster for for some time now i feel what happened with greyhound uh, oh the guy who got his head cut off <laughs> yeah <laughs> You think that they were continuing to manage that? I just think it's not great when that's the first thing you think of. I'm sure Megabus also uh, was a contributing factor, but yes, I believe that they like the routes are all Megabuses now. But mm-hmm. I, <laughs> this is maybe a little dark to get into, but I bring up the Greyhound beheading a lot, oh. and people outside of Canada are always like fascinated and horrified by the fact that this was a thing let's keep uh, it uh, a little lighter and go back to the banditos massacre <laughs> <laughs> uh, canadian crime do not check out cbc someone knows something bad podcast but speaking of bad podcasts you're listening to one and i want to talk about uh the art <laughs> um <laughs> In volume six, as we mentioned, two assistants coming on to uh, to support Brian Lee O'Malley on volume six. They are Josh or John Kantz, who was responsible for the background art and applying the screen tone, and Aaron and Chetta, who drew crowd scenes and did inking assists. Did you notice that the backgrounds got extremely detailed and like photorealistic? I think I I noticed it without like noticing it with my eyes, mm-hmm. like because I was like, there is something different here where like things just like feel more like filled out, mm-hmm. and like there's less of the things where like you'll have like a color background with like some lines or something like that, or like the screen print that we talked about right in the last or screen tone that we talked about in the last episode, and so I think I did like see it but didn't like clock it maybe consciously Mm -hmm. i found that it took away a little bit of the charm personally how like sort of realistic it was because it it lended or it lent it that sort of effect um that you see with like early digital art or like um like photo mock-ups that you would see like on the fence of a construction site where it's like this is what it's gonna look like where it's like (laughs) these these like people digitally inserted onto this like background that is like way more realistic than they are because like in those things it's supposed to be like you know the building is the focus and the people are just sort of the people are the background basically but it achieves kind of like the same effect for me because i'm like well these people are extremely stylized but that street sign (laughs) is like photorealistic do you know the the utopia meme no it's like what the world would look like if like something was not like just just look up just google utopia meme there's like an image that people use that'll be like this is what the world would look like if like x thing didn't happen and it's like this picture of a futuristic city Uh and that's that's sort of what you talking about the the backgrounds made me think of is like this where it's like extremely detailed like digital renderings that like are clearly not real Mm -hmm. but are like 
so closely emulating a real thing that yep. like it like throws you off. Yes, I'm seeing what Democrats promise, what Democrats deliver, and underneath That's is uh, an encampment. So true. That's so true. Do do that. Um, yeah, <laughs> do, I mean, do do that. So true. <laughs> also seeing one here, the world if anime was illegal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of thing that you usually get is like, this is what it would be like if this thing happened. Um, but yeah, I mean, the and again, I think that this is, again, a different perspective because I'm reading the color books. And so maybe books like... Books of color, please. That's not appropriate. <laughs> um, and so maybe like having like the fully fleshed out backgrounds being in color would help with that to some extent maybe like that like it just it feels like a fully realized universe rather than being like these are some scott pilgrim characters pasted onto this picture of a street corner Mm -hmm. um so maybe that does make a difference i speaking of which i looked up the chaos theater i was just googling queen and bathurst <laughs> it's a it's a, it's funny because like it is such a specific building yeah because I, I was like the street signs. i know i know i've seen it before for sure it's like this i'm seeing a big sign that says west on it i think it is i did look at the thing and it's it's a starbucks now is oh. what i looked at woof i mean that is kind of gideon's vibe though <laughs> I guess Starbucks. Although no, I guess I be. guess everyone's kind of like it's good that this is here, but he does strike me as kind of a uh, like there was probably something cool there before, and now it's uh, the ruins of the Chaos Theater. Well, they sort of they do that joke a couple of times, I think, where it's like Julie's apartment is like a loft oh, yeah. that used, used to be, be a warehouse else. or something. <laughs> yeah, and then the you know when they go to the chaos theater in volume five that's where he fights the twins where it's like still Mm -hmm. under construction oh actually the starbucks is across the street i'm now seeing i think or maybe (laughs) i'm just looking the starbucks is across the street sure (laughs) i'm seeing Um, people also search for big bop (laughs) like the the big bopper like don't make me get the (laughs) <laughs> sure this is already going way off the rails anyways and then like when when they go to the construction site it's like this old building is being gutted and replaced with something else yeah so there's a bit of like <laughs> that like sort of i guess like gentrification commentary if you can call it that it's pretty gentle if it it's can pretty gentle to sure exist at all yeah that's it's it's interesting because i just there, there's so much that they don't do or that he, like, does not, like, really get into, that I think especially if you made it nowadays, you'd maybe touch on it more. Like, there was one thing in the back, I was, like, looking through some of his sketches, and they were showing, like, the early sketches of um, of the twins, and then mm-hmm. and one of, like, the notes that he makes for himself. There are some really funny, like, interesting notes that he has in there, but one of the notes he makes for himself is, like, address the japanese thing which i guess is just like the fact like the twins are asian japanese yeah i know a line of dialogue that says uh excuse us english is not our first language (laughs) yeah which like like, never really does spot pilgrim joke okay (laughs) (laughs) um but but then also i didn't really think about this when i was reading it but sort of paging through it now i had this thought that like he when we're sort of seeing like the reassessment of like Scott's memories and things like that. One of the things is like Simon Lee, this guy that he (laughs) fought in high school Mm -hmm. and he, 
it's like it's kind of like Scott Pilgrim beat up Brian Lee O'Malley a little yeah. bit. <laughs> yeah, I was that that was the part like I remembered that you know there was a there was a big reframing of the whole Simon Lee thing. Right. I I didn't realize like how I guess how little detail you actually get where I'm like so wait like why did Scott beat this guy up? Like he literally like was Scott a high school bully? Is that what we're like led to believe basically? I think we are to some extent and that's just like he liked Kim like, and like that like made Scott <laughs> mad. Participated in like a racially charged assault. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know how charged it was. It was. I mean, in his head, he was not Chinese anymore. <laughs> Seems like it might have been something was he, he was not? trying to forget. No, not really. He kind of looks like Gideon, which and... maybe is yeah. supposed to be like part of the like, oh, Gideon's tampering. Maybe. But but I wouldn't necessarily have looked at him and been like Asian guy as compared to you know at the end when she's like Simon Lee the Chinese kid. When you see the picture <laughs> of him, it's like that is an Asian guy. <laughs> yes, certainly. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, again, we've sort of, like, talked about the ways that this, like, does and doesn't really touch on race, but I thought that was interesting, especially, like, the way, like, the stuff he talks about on that Tumblr post that you read about, mm-hmm. where it's sort of, like, he, he to some extent, sees it as, like, he was trying to insert him, like, he was trying to, like, make the version of himself that was, like, the fun white indie guy. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting that, like, now in like several years after creating the character that he is like reframing him as like beating up an asian guy Mm -hmm. (laughs) he's sort of wallberging him (laughs) could this be the episode that gets us canceled (laughs) it doesn't get released maybe (laughs) we're deep off the rails here that was the main thing i had to say about uh about the art assistants i looked at the crowd scenes like fairly closely to see if i would have ever clocked it and like i couldn't tell you what was drawn by o'malley and what wasn't um in in some of those group shots so they definitely did a good job they talk about uh the, the the coloring thing i was talking about where he goes through his process of coloring he talks about one of the things that the assistant did. Let me see here. I have it right here. Where he says, uh, John Cantz, that was one of the two assistants he named, right? Yeah, that was the guy who was doing the backgrounds and the screen tone. So it makes right. sense because Nathan Fairbairn, when he was doing the coloring, in a lot of cases would be removing the screen tone because because it's often used to generate a shading effect, which then if you're coloring over the screen tone, it's going to look confusing in a lot of situations. Right. Yeah. Cause he talks about how like for the first five volumes, he did all like the lighting and shadows on his own. But then for finest hour, John Kantz is like sort of doing this thing with like gray tone in mm-hmm. the background where As like, even to like doing like the screen tone dots that O'Malley does so often. Yeah, even like even the backgrounds that are like fully detailed backgrounds, you can sort of see like just sort of like lighting and shading effects being created right. with just like basically like streaks of gray. And so he talks about how like he sort of just went with that as like a guideline for his lighting in this one specifically. Um the other really interesting thing that he talked about which I found fascinating was he he's talking about how like he got some assistance on some of the flats mm-hmm. and he is like and like he shows an example of the flats and like all the colors are insane and he he says it's important to note here that Michael is not actually colorblind or insane i specifically <laughs> asked all of flatting looks like <laughs> 
I specifically ask all of my flatters to use hideous clown colors. I don't like to feel that my color choices are influenced by the work of my flatters, so the more random and garish and just plain wrong the flats are, the better as far as I'm concerned. Yes. So flatting is like a part of the coloring process that's all often kind of not farmed out, but the colorist will often get someone else to do the flatting. But it's basically like just sort of like rendering it to show not not like paint by numbers per se but like kind of like adding in the paint by numbers to be like this section is going to be distinct in color from this section to achieve some of the like shading effects and like the gradients and and those sorts of things so it makes sense like yeah if he's getting someone else to flat the book which speeds up the actual coloring process quite a bit that he would be like but don't do it like I don't want to know how you would color it. I just want to flat it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And he, he says, like, he he flats the easier pages himself, and then it was only, like, the more complex ones. Like, the one he shows here is where Gideon basically does, like, a Kamehameha. That's so, like, there's a lot of, like, different, like, lighting effects, and, like, he sort of has, like, a swirl thing happening in the background and things like that. And so I guess that's where he had some assistance. That just while we're talking about thing process things, there is a part where Brian Lee O'Malley talks about his process in the back of book five. I think I you have this also. as well. Yeah, yeah, where he talks about how like he like writes the full script before he draws anything, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was funny to um, like the note that he specifically says is that he's like, ironically, I am not a very like visual person, right. um, which I'm sort of like, you know that. That doesn't like shock me per se, just in terms of how we've sort of talked previously about how our sort of like intuitive experience of his work so far, at least, is not that he's like a super, you know, formal visual artist per se. He's he's uh, like someone who is expressing himself through art, but not necessarily like, uh, you know, someone who's spending a lot of time and energy on planning out um I mean, not to like, he also shows like he thumbnails every page and all that, but that's, that's a part of the process that comes after the book is sort of like conceived and written rather than as it's being conceived. Yeah. It's interesting because like, I mean, I think maybe Scott McLeod would be a good example of someone who like sees the whole thing as like yeah, a well, holistic. Yeah, well, he does like the opposite, right? <laughs> Where he like draws the whole he, thing, he like, draws the whole then, thing first and then adds dialogue. But, like yeah, where someone like where someone might see it as more of like a holistic thing, where it's like you are like cartooning and creating like the whole the whole piece like of itself almost simultaneously in a way. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think it makes sense that he is more like I am the writer of this book and I am also the artist of this book, <laughs> and like those are two different jobs that I complete separately. Yeah, and and like knowing that there like was a time where you used to look into your father's just... eyes. What? Do you know the song uh, "Don't You Worry, Child" by Swedish House Mafia? No, um, but there was a time in Brian Lee O'Malley's life where he considered just going like kind of all in on writing and becoming an author. So it yeah, it doesn't really surprise me. A lot of cartoonists you'll hear, and like this is true for Scott and, and for other uh, cartoonists as well, but a lot of times you'll hear where it was like, I've been like drawing comics since I was a kid and like I made I drew these comics f- like for my friend the writer is of like you know very much the Scott thing with Kurt Busick whereas Brian Lee O'Malley like you know he also made comics as a kid and he drew comics as a kid. but to know that like, the primary interest as he was starting to kind of get more serious about it was writing as opposed to art 
it just like then doesn't surprise me to hear that like he prefers to write out a script before he draws anything yeah for sure it's also the other crazy thing in his process is how like he inks the word balloons and the sound effects like before he does anything else and then he like pencils in the figures did you see this no he he's like i know where i want the word balloons to be and so i will like i will draw out the balloons first and then like draw figures into the panel that is that is fairly crazy (laughs) that's like that's like a reverse marvel method where are you you familiar with the marvel method i mean i know that there is a thing called the marvel method which is just like their house style that yeah that was like the the like creative process was that the writer and the artist would uh like develop a plot outline together then the artist would take the plot outline and draw everything and then they the writer would receive the finished pages and add dialogue so this is like (laughs) yeah just just like a true like almost like it's not anti-visual because it's based on where he wants the word balloons to be but it's funny to imagine putting the word balloons in first and then kind of like drawing around them yeah he says here like i like to place my word balloons as soon as possible i already know where they'll be from the thumbnail sketch and often i just put a balloon in the corner before i even begin to draw the figures which is just like a crazy way to think of it. And he talks about how uh, he says sometimes I'll have to end. I'll end up repenciling a whole panel after having inked in the balloon outlines, trying to keep the figures in roughly the same location. Sometimes I have to paste in a new panel when things get really bad. I'm just imagining like drawing like that. Like terrifies me. First of all, is like yeah, having the I inability never, to like. I would never ink anything until I was like sure it was how I wanted it. Yeah, having like the inability to go back and edit your work, and then also like you're doing you're not doing like one panel at a time you're doing one page at a time and so it's like i have to get these like five panels correctly Mm -hmm. is very terrifying to think about for me yeah um nathan fairburn we haven't like talked about his career really at all um and it's like he's quite prolific but he's only been doing like coloring work since 2007 um which i thought was interesting like he wasn't even it's it's like a young team that uh, when he brings people in to work on these books other than himself like i think at the end here of the book when it gives like the little profiles of john Kantz, he's 28 and then aaron and Chetta, who's doing the group scenes and stuff is 20 and still in school um and then like i'm not sure exactly how old nathan fairburn would have been but the color editions come out in like 2012 or 2013 so it's not like he's like a you know, long established vet. Um, right. When he gets called on to to do the colors for this. Yeah, I mean, like I he talks about he colored seconds as well, right? Yeah. Which I think we will. I imagine we will get into in the near future. Uh, it's safe to say. But yeah, I mean, like I again, I can't. It's partly because I haven't read the black and white ones recently. And partly because, like, I don't know that much about the whole, like, coloring process in comics and things like that. But, like, I did feel like over the last, like, three volumes, it started to feel a lot less like this was something that was drawn, that was, like, done in black and white and then had colors pasted on. I still don't really, like, he talks about sort of the idea that, like, because he was coloring a thing that already existed a lot, like, he was like, I know a lot of people will say that, like, it can just be in black and white like it doesn't have to have color and then it was like i hope people realize that like even though it's good in black and white that like having color can add like this this and this and it's like i don't know if i can fully get there 
mm-hmm. where it's like I'm just like this is objectively better, but it certainly feels a lot more like integrated into the work, and it feels more like a single piece of work rather than something that was finished and then like right. went back and had like color added to it. Yeah, I definitely like, there's definitely yeah things. There are benefits to color comics, and in general, I prefer a color comic. I just don't love colorizing art that, you know, I've, I've ranted at length already about colorizing black and white art, about recoloring old art. Um, I generally, I generally just am sort of like, let it, let it lie. Like it was, it was done as it was. And if there's not like a serious, like technical issue that caused like it to not come out the way it was supposed to, like, I don't necessarily see a reason to revisit I don't know. It's just one of those weird things where it's like we would not really accept a writer like going back and editing dialogue. Yeah, it is a little. And it's also a little bit like Star Wars special edition type beat to some extent, Um, (laughs) which which I will say, like, since we're talking about it already, the like post movie life of this comic is just like deranged in terms of like there's so, so many versions of it. They make a joke about it on uh, the Oni website, which I found to be amusing. (laughs) Just that like it's been re-released so many times in different forms. I'm uh, going to go and see if I can find it. But I know like so there's the original publications and then they did a box set and then they did mm-hmm. individual color volumes and a box set color volume. And then they did like another re-edition of the color box set, but with the evil X's on the covers. And then they did like a more compact version where uh, they had they had like the whole series in three books. Weird. Yeah. It's like omnibus, but not kind of yeah uh why does scott pilgrim have powers (laughs) will scott pilgrim have two (laughs) uh just a few other uh a few other little things that i have seen here but yes on the scott pilgrim like oni press page uh it says shop the entire scott pilgrim graphic novel series by brian lee o'malley now available in like eight billion different formats and editions just kidding it's only like four billion (laughs) sure and so yes i'm seeing collector's edition with uh limited exclusive print set and bonus uh the villain version of that uh, sex bob bomb drumsticks, a t-shirt. Oh, did you see like the summer print that he did this like past summer? No. Um, I will send you the image, but he did uh, this like riff on an X-Men promo image that is extremely funny and uh, and charming. Is it where they're at the beach? It, they're like poolside. You, I think you'll recognize what it's homaging when you see it. Kind of right yes i do i have a very specific image of the of cyclops <laughs> spinning yeah. the volleyball <laughs> yes that's and a classic like, a colossus and jubilee both doing like the muscle man pose is <laughs> also a very funny part in which uh he has replaced them with lucas lee is flexing and wallace is drinking a martini <laughs> sure anyways it's very good but so that's uh, that's sold out but it was uh, for sale on there and then uh, Evil X box set, Evil X individual version, uh, Scott Pilgrim miniatures the world, which is like a tabletop game. Oh um, 
and then there's uh like you can get just the actual miniatures without the game scott pilgrim's precious little card game uh the three volume color edition box set each of the three volumes from that as individual things um the six color editions the six evil x editions and then the six regular volumes and what's on page two here like a pin set and some other stuff (laughs) power of love letter opener Oh boy. And yeah, I mean, a one up gold coin. It is kind of interesting how much of like a merchandising empire this became. Like, I get like, especially for like Oni Press, where it's like, this is like by far your biggest hit. And so, of course, you're going to like do merch and stuff for it. But like, it's interesting to have something like a tabletop game where it's like, mainly because like there are so many like, there are interesting concepts in the universe, I guess. Mm-hmm, but like mm-hmm. most of the concept most of the concepts are just like cribbed from other things right or like clear like pastiches or homages to other things and so like i guess it's because the whole like magical realism thing is sort of in nowadays mm-hmm. but like you know like i can't imagine like i guess like a tabletop miniatures game was different from like a tabletop rpg but like i can't imagine playing like a scott pilgrim tabletop rpg well it's just like it's the world is not the draw you know and so it's not like enter like the the world of scott pilgrim is that's not like a thing in the same way it is with like game of thrones or lord of the rings kind of is in the sense that it's like oh like it's the normal world but like you have superpowers and like the way that people like settle arguments with each other is by having like crazy fights and like mm-hmm. that 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 there is that sort of like it's our world but like you ha- it, it is like you know people think about like what if i had superpowers right. and it's like you're not imagining what if i lived in metropolis and had superpowers you're like i would fly to the mall <laughs> Right. Yeah, it's it's it just doesn't feel like distinctly or uniquely Scott Pilgrim to me in a way that I'm like, oh, it would totally make sense to me. But yeah, what I think what makes it distinct is the fact that it's like a mashup of so many different influences and you're taking all those different things and then putting that in like a pretty normal world. Yeah. Um, on his Instagram, O'Malley has a story that was like a Q&A for the 10th anniversary, which of course was um, not so very long ago. And uh, I guess it was a couple of years now. Yeah, of the movie. And there's some interesting things that he has to say on there. He is asked, someone asks anything you regret or that you changed. And he says, I think Scott Pilgrim shows about 1% of my full potential, but that doesn't mean the other 99% of my potential would generate something equally popular or fun. There's a particular energy that comes from a young person creating work about being young. If you took out the parts you regret, it wouldn't be the same thing. So on some level, I regret nothing. On another level, I regret everything. (laughs) Very... (laughs) very him yeah and like i think that that's definitely correct that like it i think one of the great things about it is its ability to capture like especially in like the first couple of volumes i think especially because i imagine he like as the volumes go on he is like less sort of in the scene Mm -hmm. and like you know the his the the later volumes still have stuff like people's apartments and like the way that like people moving apartments can like be a thing when you're like in your mid twenties, mm-hmm. but it it feels less like hyper specific, which I think is like something that really is interesting about the first couple of volumes that and that like people gravitated towards because even if like 
you weren't living in Toronto as I am, like in his exact neighborhood. That like <laughs> there is a level of specificity to it that is like intriguing about it. And you're like, oh, like these characters are like even even the characters that don't get a lot of screen time, it's like these people feel so specific that that mm-hmm. is interesting. Right. Um, the other thing that I wanted to read is someone says, I'm surprised by the lack of Scott Pilgrim merch. There were some awesome t-shirts in Edgar's pick. Yes, I know. Again, two years ago. And mm-hmm. he says, this is another thing that's hard to explain to people, but because the movie lost money at the box office, it created a Scott Pilgrim merch void. Nobody wants to make merch based on a movie people didn't watch. This is the same reason the deal lapsed on the video game, which I'm not sure exactly what that's referring to, but uh, perhaps you have information. I do know that the video game was recently re-released, and so I imagine it's a situation where some it was like the people were like, "Why can't we get this on Steam or something?" And it was yeah, because... like it was removed from Steam or from like the Xbox Store or something right. like that. Yeah, because it was it wasn't on PC; it was only on 360 and PS3, uh... and then got delisted in 2014, and then an updated version for PS4, Xbox, Switch. And, and Microsoft Windows was re-released on in January 2021. There you have it. Um, and so he wraps up that question by saying, I think you'll probably see more Scott Pilgrim merch in the near future than you saw in the last decade. And uh, it's like a big theme of this whole Q&A is sort of like, people are still like so into it. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, like, I fully understand being into it because like, like I said, even though it capture it's it's that classic like it's so specific that it starts to feel universal kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And to the point I was talking about earlier about like the the characters in it like I think one of the things it does extremely well is like depicting not not a community exactly, but like the way that like you'll go to a party and you'll see like someone who you've seen at a party before who like is the friend of one of your other friends and like the way that like social connections like exist in life where it's like people run in the same circles and like you bump into the same people and it might and it's like the person that you went to university with and had a class with is like dating someone you knew in high school that's actually exactly what or actually i i have a friend where it's like my friend from high school's roommate like her roommate from like first year is now dating another person who I went to high school with. And like the way that like all those like social bonds can sort of like get connected, especially when like you're young and like you live in the same place and you go to parties like multiple Mm -hmm. times a month. Like, I think it is really good at establishing that kind of like feeling of a community of people. This is just a story that I think is funny. We could probably save it for movie talk, but I want to read it now anyways. He, (laughs) so he says, um, someone, uh, or the, a question comes in that he identifies as being from Adam Siegel, who's one of the producers of the movie, where he says, I heard the Hilary Duff movie, The Perfect Man is a big inspiration. True? Question mark. Happy 10th. And he says, this is a question from uh, Adam Siegel, but I think it's a funny story. In 2005, I was walking around, oh, you saw this? 
this? Okay. Well, I saw. It's, I saw. It's in. It's in one of the bonus editions. I think when he's talking about locations. Okay, okay. Yeah. So he basically says that like the reason that Castle Loma is in the book is because he saw a movie shooting there, which was The Perfect Man, starring Hilary Duff, um, and he just like liked the look of it all lit up for the movie, and so he decided to put it in the book. And then um, <laughs> Adam Siegel was one of the producers also uh, on The Perfect Man. Um, so then he was like on set for their shoot at Casa Loma for the Lucas Lee scene, which was inspired by the shoot that they were there to do previously for The Perfect Man, uh, which he thought was funny. And then he tells a story also about uh, Carson Kressley of The Queer Eye um, coming in <laughs> to the restaurant that he was working at and realizing much later that he's in The Perfect Man and was probably there because he was filming at that shoot. <laughs> But it's fun. Yeah, it's a, it's a Mark Platt uh, joint, I believe. The Perfect Man is, as well as mm. Scott Pilgrim. Uh, Mark Platt, one of our great producers. Plattiest like producers. <laughs> Do we have anything else in particular to say about the ending? About Well, we haven't really talked about Knives too much. Who, like, I think we sort of, and Young Neil to some extent. I think we sort of talked about this in a previous episode that, like, knives is the character maybe who like is most most exemplifies like the coming of age narrative because like she is so different from like the beginning of the book to the end of the book and because like it's funny because the it and this maybe says something about sort of like the second coming of age which we've talked about a few times over these episodes is like the second coming of age is often like smaller (laughs) than the Mm -hmm. first one i guess you could say because like you're not necessarily like moving to a new place or like starting a new job or something it's sort of like it's more about settling down than it is about like breaking out and so knives like it's it's i just think it's interesting that like knives has a bigger like character shift because she is like going from being 17 years old to 18 years old rather than going from being 23 years old to 24 years old right. and that she is the one who has like figured this out much faster than scott has <laughs> yes or neil for that matter who is uh, also seemingly just just getting his uh, figuring it out moment when he is officially dubbed neil yeah, he <laughs> he also is a character who i think like gets a bit of a short shrift and could probably have like been explored more because they're like the couple of moments that we get are fun like where he's like in the house (laughs) smoking the cigarette staring Mm -hmm. at the window like (laughs) i think just like if you're talking about people who scott kind of like left in his wake i think young neil is probably a good example of that where like it seems like neil like idolizes scott well i think it's more so that he idolizes steven stills like i think that a big kind of like factor well all of all of his like resentment and anger is because steven stills doesn't hang out with him anymore and like when scott and kim show up um he's not like excited to see them he's just like steven's not here yeah but i mean maybe there's like some (laughs) is there like some unspoken uh repression there <laughs> oh you're alluding of course to the like borderline last page reveal that <laughs> borderline, I, think say borderline offensive. <laughs> I don't think it's offensive it's not, it's not I, offensive do, it just is like a little out of nowhere i mean it's like almost just a setup for a joke about it being like everyone else found out about this like quite a while ago right it happened in book five <laughs> yeah 
I don't think that that is an element. I do think because I was reading him sort of uh, I, I think this was on his Tumblr or somewhere. Someone asked like why basically like why did Holly like stab Kim in the back? And he mm-hmm. talks about how like basically like you know the whole the whole point of the book is there's two sides to every story and we heard Kim's side but we don't have like really any idea what Holly's perspective on that is and like Kim is uh you know a complex person who com- contains multitudes and so like you know the whole the whole kind of thrust of the book is it's easy to forget about the other side of the story when you are like kind of thinking of yourself as the main character and i think that when you kind of look for that in volumes 5 and 6 there are like lots of places where it can be found and like Kim's like relationship with Holly and uh, and Jason Kim <laughs> do we know someone named Jason Kim I talked about this in the last episode you do know I someone have, named Jason Kim I have a friend from high school okay. a great guy I want to give him a shout out if he's listening I would not imagine he is but <laughs> yes Jason Kim I feel like I also know a Jason Kim who is not this Jason Kim. Maybe that's what's throwing me off. Anyways, I think that throughout kind of volumes five and six, there are there are lots of like hints as to that. And I think hmm. that young Neil's like, you know, turmoil uh, as a result of kind of being left behind by Stephen Stills, who is like being consumed by the album, is another example of one where we do kind of get both sides to that story. But you can like you you get the perspective to see how like they both see themselves probably as sort of like the wronged one to mm-hmm. to some degree where Stephen still is like I'm like a suffering artist I can't like make my art happen and my girlfriend broke up with me or I broke up with her or whatever um, or even like with that where like he says that he broke up and Kim is like what did you do to her <laughs> it's kind of like Julie like, really Julie is like kind of like too messed up for it to all be Julie's fault <laughs> sure uh, so yeah I th- there's there's just like kind of lots of nods to those sorts of things I think kind of through out yeah i mean even kim it's like do we ever get like a full satisfying explanation as to why kim like left toronto and moved back in no with her yeah we don't. like we don't really like get the full picture there and like i think again that sort of speaks to like i, I don't i wouldn't even want to say a character being underwritten because in some like i imagine that that's by design that like we're sort of seeing you know like i was talking about like the social circles that it's like we see things from Scott's perspective. And so we don't always get like a complete and like a a picture that makes sense to us. Mm -hmm. And because we're only like, it's like, we're hearing Kim talk about Holly, like in passing in like over the course of a conversation. It's like, do you ever have this thing where it's like someone in your life, like alludes to something and you're like, I like, it's like, should I already know what that is? (laughs) Uh, You're describing how I get by in every social situation, (laughs) pretending I already knew whatever thing I'm being told and obviously already should have known. (laughs) Right. And I, I feel like I had like the flip of this where I got a new job recently and then I realized that, like, I didn't tell anyone in my life oh, about my new that, job. <laughs> I mean, you, I think, were on, I was recently, I'm I'm pulling a Kim and going back to school, and I think you were included on a message I sent to a bunch of friends of ours, and was specifically called out as, like, good work for the first time in your life, <laughs> like, sharing a major <laughs> life event. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, like, it wasn't even, like, on purpose necessarily, it was just, like, a thing where, 
I like was not talking about it because I wasn't sure that it was happening. And then I was like, mm-hmm. okay, it's happening. It's like, now this is normal. But then now it's like every time I, and especially with, I guess like COVID's kind of over. So this is like increasingly not as much of an excuse. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, <laughs> yeah. With oh, the, this is going to wreak havoc on my social life. COVID being over. <laughs> But it's just like the idea that like because of COVID that you could like you could fall out of contact with someone over right. like an extended period. Like and then, it's like, chill that we haven't seen each other in two years. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so like and so with everyone now, it's like whenever I like restart a conversation, I always have to just like double check to be like, you know that I have a new job, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah, Kim's like, and I also think like Kim's return to Toronto is part of the sort of slow or not even that slow, but the, the, like, I think of all the kind of secondary characters at, outside of like be, that secondary being anyone who's not Scott and Ramona. I think she gets sort of like the biggest arc and the biggest sort of change. And that is because he starts to do these things that like are not explained, but sort of, you know, point to the things that are happening in Kim's life that we don't see because the book is not about Kim, but that like are still are still happening. So like, you know, she has this this um destroyed relationship with her roommates she has this like uh this return home and even things like when we find out that like it, it wasn't kim that he told that he was moving to toronto he told lisa and then yeah, lisa told kim <laughs> which yeah is, is so messed up um or or like um like the fact that we don't find out about that until after the scene at the bus stop where he says sorry for everything and she says it's not your fault and he says sorry about me and she says apology accepted where it's like that's that's like a uh, like kim key in some ways where it's like yeah like she like harps on him and partly it's like joking and and sort of like friendly teasing but also like they like she's not just like unaffected by him no, Kim's great. And I think yeah, like that's Kim, sort of like what we what like we see in these two books is just like I mean Scott sort of directly points to it that it's like Kim is kind of like the constant where it's like mm-hmm. even though like she is like the meanest to him, she is also the nicest <laughs> to him in some ways. Well it just like injects a lot of meaning to the fact that at the end Shatterband is like just him and Kim. Yeah, I really like, like that. They still are so bad. Um, also, <laughs> I love <laughs> that was an extremely bad cover of uh, yes. I'm a Believer by the Monkeys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, that young Neil had really made me laugh. Yeah, that that part's good, but just like the fact that like to to I guess have the clear understanding of like for her and for Scott really like it was never about like playing shows or like making it as musicians and so like it makes sense that Stephen well, Stills yeah. like doesn't want them to be in his band anymore and like really they don't it's so clear that they don't really want to be in his band anymore because the recording process they like hated yeah they don't they don't want to be like it's I mean like he basically envies them but it's like more of like an amicable split because right, it's like yeah their priorities like what they get out of being in a band is so different than like what someone who wants to be a professional musician it's like if we had a third host who was obsessed with us like monetizing this (laughs) podcast and like getting ads and we're like we're not doing this because we think people are gonna (laughs) listen to it (laughs) yeah i i have like had conversations with well actually i won't even get it but like i i've talked like (laughs) with my other podcasts where it's like people have talked about like here's a way we can grow the podcast and i was like and then i was just like 
maybe you need to look into ways that you can accept the fact that we will have like 10 (laughs) listeners (laughs) and maybe that's not a fair uh way to go about things but yeah i mean well you know different different uh, artistic goals for different projects certainly but i know like yeah certainly i like related to that where i was like and it's the same like i have been in bands and like i have played shows but like i'm not actually interested in ever like trying to like make a go of it in the music industry it's just like one of the ways that i like to hang out with people and like spend time together Um, and you like music and i like music yeah that helps too (laughs) 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 but but like yeah i just thought it was like it was a real sort of like shining a light on her in a way that just like makes her rule even more where it's just like yeah she like just likes hanging out with scott and like playing the drums is like one of the ways that she hangs out with scott and like they don't need to have steven stills trying to like get them booked for shows or like recording an album it's like much more so just about being like you know in a a small room together like making a lot of noise yeah and i think it's also fun that like that it's like this is a foursome that's hanging out is yeah, like Scott, young, Kim, young, Knives, young. and Neil. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, like the, the, what you were saying about that whole bus scene, I think is also like illuminates, like you said, it, it illuminates why Kim rules to some extent. But like <laughs> just the fact that like she like is always gonna be there for Scott and like understands like the crappy version of Scott, but then also it's like. It's like she's gonna be there for you, but like she just would appreciate you, like <laughs> also being there for her. Yeah, and also just like acknowledging your behavior every once in a yeah. while. Yeah, and she's she's sort of like uh, the the anti envy in a way where it's like not that like the other people don't recognize Scott's shortcomings, but she's like kind of the only person in his life consistently who like understands. Like, like she was, she's the only person who wouldn't be like, what the, like, what's that other Scott? She's like, no, I know about Nega Scott. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and like, and, and understands like better than Scott does that like, there isn't really a Nega Scott. It's like, it's all Scott. Yeah. Um, and, and so like, that's sort of the foundation of their friendship is like, not just the constancy, but also the knowledge that she is someone who has like always kind of known who he was and like, liked him anyways. Right. Um, do we want to talk, like, do we, have we gone into enough the depth about, like, the whole way that, like, Scott and Ramona's relationship sort of, like, restarts at the end of this and, like, the, the actual, like, last pages of the book and things like that? Uh, I mean, we haven't gone into depth of <laughs> them at all, but it's, it's, Well, we know, sort of it... talked about, like, their sort of mutual, like, issues that they need to work through over the course of, like, the climax. Right. But well, then, like, I'm it... thinking about, like, the conversation that they sort of have in the elevator, which ends up sort of being one of the theses. Pause for laughter. It sounds like feces. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm just getting ready so I can make my joke about the big change they got from Gideon again. <laughs> okay, sure. Um, Seven but like, million dollars worth, baby. Right. Uh, but one of the, the theses of the book is... <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're firing your gun to the air <laughs> celebratorily. <laughs> And this is sort of what I was talking about earlier, that, like, the second coming of age isn't, it's 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 a settling down rather than a breaking out. I get, that is, like, what Ramona talks about in that scene to some extent. Like, she says, she's always trying to outrun the universe. Nothing can change me as long as I change first. And I think, like, 
yeah, I guess maybe that that is sort of like representative of their relationship ultimately. And like, that's, that's what the hair is uh, to your point is that like her thing is like, she constantly cuts her hair because she wants it to like to change before anyone can say they don't like it. Whereas Scott is like, I can't ever cut my hair because then someone will say that they don't like it. I'm like, that <laughs> will destroy ruin. Me. Yeah. Yeah. And so like Scott's thing is like, he can't bear to change even positively. And then Ramona's thing is like, she can't bear to stay in one place, even if it's a good place for her. Right. And I think that like, there's an element too where like the hair, the whole hair thing, like they don't understand each other with the hair either. Right. Like Ramona doesn't understand why he won't cut his hair. And he like, every time she changes her hair, he freaks out because he's like, this what is like does an this envy. mean? Yeah. Or, well, not, not even like, is this an envy? But he's he's sort of like, what does this mean? And the whole thing of it is like, when we find out that she wasn't with Gideon after she did her like big dramatic haircut, That's it's sort of thing. like, it doesn't like mean anything. Like, it, it, I'm, I'm not changing my hair because it like means something that I changed my hair. I just like went and stayed with my dad. <laughs> like, right. it wasn't, it wasn't a symbol of like something to do with Gideon per se. And so like, yeah, they, they basically they have their own things about like change that they have to work through where she uses it as kind of a defense mechanism and he's totally terrified of it. And then by being separate, they kind of come to this peace with themselves by by being able to sort of examine it and come to terms with it. And then when they're back together again, they also have like become able to understand each other's hang-ups with with regards to change. And Scott just has so much of it after that $7 million payday then. <laughs> And I think also, like, having the ability to, like, verbalize their emotion, because, like, that's, like, such a big, that's what the glow is, I kind of feel like, to Mm -hmm. some extent, where it's, like, you are, like, feeling the effects of, like, this problem with yourself, but are unable to verbalize it and, like, don't understand. Things that should be externalized are instead, like, trapped in your head. And, and of course, Gideon um, is uh, a war profiteer? Is that what (laughs) we're given to understand? It is the funny line when Scott's like, I thought you were a music producer, because I'm like, was, is he a music producer? (laughs) And he's like, no, I'm a leading expert in emotional warfare, and also I have this heart. Okay, what's the thing with the, like, the harvester? Like, are are they just, with his girlfriends, are they just, like, in cryosleep, or, or is he, like, somehow, like, deriving energy from them he is not kingdom heartsing them no (laughs) where (laughs) he is like putting them in stasis and using the power of their light to unlock the door to kingdom hearts like in the video game kingdom hearts i think his thing is like it's like he is like so possessive of his women that it's like i have to keep my girlfriends in cryo sleep until like they understand that it's good to be with me and then i'll unfreeze them and they'll be with me so I was confused. Did did they reject him, or they are like his exes who like tried to break up with him, and he was like, "Instead, I put you in cryo sleep." They are his exes. I think we say that quite explicitly. I'll find the page, but yeah, his that's like sort of the whole thing with him, where it's like it's not quite as like fully developed or like clear right. as we want it to be, and, well, and maybe just that's kind what, of like exes and exes the letter. 
um, and they kill him with the X strike, which is fun. And there is a lot of X talk uh, in Volume Five, especially all those scenes where Scott is like getting changed and talking to Ramona, and she's not really paying attention. He's like summarizing Claremont X Men story beats to her. Oh, because there was one where I did understand what he was talking about. Well, because he references one. he references Wolverine explicitly in one of them. He's talking about the Australia era, where um, I mean, you read it, but <laughs> there. I think it's after Inferno. Um, the world is like convinced that the X-Men are dead. So they like go and live in the Australian outback and do their stuff. There is that for where a the while. Savage Land is? No, I think the Savage Land is like at the core of the earth or something. Right. It's like underground. And then the second time he is describing the events of the uh, magic miniseries being Ileana Rasputin, sister of Colossus. Right. Of course. Anya Taylor-Joy as I know her. And you saw that movie in theaters? I almost, I almost saw that movie in theaters <laughs> in July of 2020. I saw Tenet in theaters, and then I was like, this is a bridge too far if I roll out during COVID for New Mutants. <laughs> uh, but an underrated film, I will say. Uh, and, you know, maybe, I guess he doesn't explicitly say that they're exes. He says they're the ones that got away. But I think it's it sort of is indicative of like his possessiveness towards like of like the way that he sees women as like right. possessions and like things that should belong to him and like they don't really have the, the autonomy of their own to like decide whether or not they love him. They just have to love him because like he has them. <laughs> Like, mm-hmm. physically possesses them. Right. The other... and uh, To the point that we were talking about before... I'm trying to remember what we were talking about here. About, like, the character sort of not fulfilling... Oh, lots of change. Something... Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you think about it, with yeah. each X, he changes a bit more. And so he gets a bit more change. I think that's actually, like correct I, I also think that's correct i just i'm mostly like <laughs> it's a bit on the nose and so i'm i'm having a bit of fun with it i mean it's, it's not bad having a bit of a larf <laughs> it's not it's not that it's like so obvious i don't think so much as it is that like once you kind of like put it together it's kind of like oh that's what that, <laughs> that is change represents change I think anything where it's like it's the same word, is <laughs> two like, sides of the same coin, and it's the I literal can finally semenari. <laughs> Stop! We are That's not a joke talking no one about gets. we can finally semenari. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I was going to talk about the whole like where it's like, oh, she wasn't with Gideon; she was with her dad. Like, which is like a fun swerve, and like, and I think that that is him sort of trying to steer away from the image like from like the image that he created of like her like on her knees by her by his throne oh i see yeah of her like being his puppet to that degree where it's like it's like she does need a little bit more self-actualization than that she it doesn't need to just be like she is trapped and needs scott to free her from like her bondage like she does need to have like a bit of her own personal development and like she has things that are wrong with her too that she needs to like deal with and so I think like that that's also what get, what like makes Gideon a little bit underwhelming is that like he recognizes that he needs to steer away from Gideon but then also it's like it's so like set up that like you can't not have it be Gideon and so I think that that is part of the a bit of a problem that it creates is there a song called Swerve are you thinking of Swang by Ray Shrummerd no I'm mostly thinking of like 
swerve being like a rap thing um well like you might be thinking of there's a i think there's a big sean song where he just go like swerve is a common ad lib like when someone's talking about their car they'll be like swerve because it's like they're driving their car (laughs) it's the same as like a skirt oh yes i see here okay lamborghini mercy swerve your chick she's so thirsty swerve that's the song. I don't know why I couldn't got think it, of that. Got it. <laughs> you love Lamborghini Mercy. I do love Lamborghini Mercy. <laughs> uh, there's a fanning I, myself while I say it, of course. Sure. Um, <laughs> I just watched. There's this this like special that they made in 2020 for like you know how they have like Red Nose Day for comic relief. Sure. They made this special that was like celebrity escape room. Mm-hmm. Where it's um, I did see that you that reviewed I that on Letterboxd. Yeah, so it's it's hosted by Jack and, Black. And plug the box. Sure, at Sea House and Jen on Letterboxd. <laughs> um, Just like saying plug the box mostly. <laughs> sure, but plug the box. Pro- <laughs> problematic, perhaps. Um, Why? So it's a celebrity escape room hosted by Jack Black, and the celebrities are. Ben Stiller, Adam Scott, Courtney Cox, oh, and Lisa boy. Kudrow. It's a fun group. <laughs> but there's one that there's one ongoing bit where Jack Black keeps talking about how if they don't solve his escape room, he's going to take the money that would otherwise be going to charity and is going to buy a Lamborghini Countach. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think that Countach is an inherently very funny uh, word. Sure, it's uh, got uh-huh. like a bit of poontang element in it for sure. It's got uh-huh. like a bit of a cush element to it as well. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> All totally. things that we love. Totally, totally, totally. Okay. I'm feeling like we're done. <laughs> I'm feeling like we're done as well. I'm just looking through my notes right now. Um, oh, the there's the Now Magazine reappears. Did you oh, see yes. this time yeah, that yeah. it has the same headline again? Oh, I did not see it. No. <laughs> it has the Bam Pow comics aren't just for kids anymore uh, headline again. Classic. Uh, and then there's, there's one that's like, our video games art sources say no i think is one of them <laughs> well this would there's... have been like like height of the what was that guy's name the lawyer who was like so anti oh, jack, uh, jack something yeah jack something he was so crazy jack well that was like 2005 but, but like we're jack pretty close lawyer right v. like uh, a few years removed uh, the the art thing sort of came after like the right. grand theft auto has to be banned jack thompson right, right. And then they were like, it is, look, we made Braid. Sure, yeah. It is a, it's more Braid and like Limbo than it is Jack Thompson. Um, and then there's also, I don't know what the joke is here, but there's like, there's an obscured name. The headline is like, blank takes off, rich famous writer speaks. But the, the name is obscured by a word balloon. I don't Probably, know what the joke uh, is there. Scott Pilgrim. No, because it's... I think you you can see the first word the letter it's like a K or an R and then it's in ends in like six. an M A yeah it's at the very beginning of Volume Six anyways um, and then the other Envy Adams on her solo album and then Ten Hot Looks for Spring if you're a lumberjack is the last one <laughs> I love a fake headline I will say um, or like a a fake marquee like Family Guy and Simpsons that's a classic gag where it's like you have the the establishing shot and then like on the marquee there will be some kind of like funny slogan or like advertisement for an event you know what i mean yeah oh i think it says radio drama takes off <laughs> <laughs> really? why does yeah, it say that I, 
I think it says radio drama takes off. Rich, famous writer speaks, and the joke is just like, imagine if you could get famous and rich from writing a radio drama. <laughs> I guess so. I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's what it says. I believe my, you. my forensic analysis uh, concludes. Although speaking of which, I did feel that uh, you can like kind of feel we've talked previously kind of about like when does this book start to really like get big and like the swagger level I feel like in five and six <laughs> yeah. is like pretty high from that perspective where like so like for volume five on the back like the back cover doesn't really like even try to explain what's happening. The, the the synopsis on the back is the world is not enough why did he have to turn 24 why do robots keep trying to kill him why is the band falling apart why is Ramona acting so weird why won't those brilliant and deadly Japanese twins leave him alone see Scott Pilgrim learn the answers inside or die trying it's so much stuff where it's like and of course if you're reading this you know what we're, we're talking about right um, and like likewise the like the first thing in the book when you open it is characters you should know by now. <laughs> and then volume six forgoes any synopsis whatsoever and just has a pull quote from Joss Whedon. <laughs> I was about to talk about the Joss Whedon pull quote. Um, so I was like, when I was poking around a bit today, I sort of determined that like as volume three was coming out is when it started to like get like pretty big. Um, so it makes sense that by five and like, you know, by, by this time, like the movie is kind of knocking on the door. Um, but, but you can definitely feel that, uh, that he has made it <laughs> just from some of the like basic design elements of the book. Yeah. And even like, like, I feel like you can almost feel it in the writing where it's like, this has to be like more of a book and can't just be like, I'm depicting a pizza pizza at this specific street right. corner <laughs> because I think it's like funny to do that. And like, which is, I think why, like we talked about a little bit, like the book starts to become less like focused on like the social circles and stuff and more on like the direct relationships with the characters that we already like, like the most. Right. Well, any, uh, there, there is awards talk, right? There is awards talk. In 2010, he wins uh, for Best Humor Publication for Scott Pilgrim versus the World at the Eisners. In t he won a Harvey in 2007, I think, also as a humor publication award here. Vampal, well, you know who won a Harvey in 2008? <laughs> Gumby? <laughs> the Joker. Oh. Uh, wait, like, really he, like like Joker by Brian Azzarello and Lee Bermejo? No, the guy that... <laughs> what oh, were we just oh, talking oh, about? I... <laughs> like, <laughs> he won Harvey Dent over to his side? Is he that... won his soul. <laughs> the battle for his soul, certainly. What were we just talking about where we, we were like talk, asking someone if the Joker was at the hospital? <laughs> Like a suspiciously sexy nurse. This was, this was like related to the fact that we have multiple healthcare professionals in the family. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. He won the special award for humor in comics for Scott Pilgrim and the Infinite Sadness, which is a Point not four. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the the awards think that he's a funny, funny guy. Um, I did read something recently where. <laughs> I think it was an interview that he gave for seconds where he was basically kind of like, I'm not even that funny. Like, don't give these awards to me. It is it is a little strange, like, to give him... Because, like, I mean, it is obviously a very comedic book, but, you know, like, 
I think a lot of comic books have like very strong humor elements Mm -hmm. and then also are like about relationships and action and stuff. Yeah. And so it is a little weird to be like, this is one of our classic funny books, although it is very funny, of course. Right. I will say also in that, like, um, the, the thing that I was reading where he was sort of highlighting some of the ways that he was starting to like break out in, uh, in sort of the more popular culture. He appeared, I think it was in Variety, I want to say, that someone had like this like hot and not like kind of quadrant where it was broken out. Like the Y axis was um, lowbrow versus like sophisticated and the x-axis was uh, brilliant versus like stupid (laughs) and (laughs) volume three was at like the very bottom right corner of brilliant lowbrow (laughs) it's like it's not even that lowbrow i remember the thing like directly above him was like this character actor joins um like the sopranos or something like that i was like what what is happening (laughs) um yeah i mean it is i guess there is like that one pee joke but other than that there aren't really like (laughs) pee jokes fart jokes (laughs) poop jokes even not even nary a poop (laughs) um they don't even vom i hate a vom we I, i can't get into spaghetti dog and things of that nature (laughs) <laughs> Anyways, I think Brian that will have yes. to do it for today's episode. <laughs> we are doing next week, not the movie, right? Um, I mean, if we're going chronologically, it should be the movie. Let's do the movie because it, it just makes sense. We're already yeah. talking about Scott Pilgrim and it is what comes next chronologically. I agree. So next week we will be doing the film Scott Pilgrim versus the world uh, directed by Edgar Wright. I've uh, you know I've been chambering a lot of things that I want to discuss. Uh, you know we didn't talk about the too much about the Kanagi twins and the differences in the way that they're depicted in the movie as opposed to the book, which is to say almost not at all. Uh, yeah, well I was gonna say I don't really remember anything about their depiction. Do they like not speak? Uh, you'll see. We'll talk about it next episode. <laughs> are they like bleep bloop bleep bloop? <laughs> they are kind of like bleep bloop bleep bloop in a way that you will come to understand. <laughs> uh, but that will do it for this week. As always, you can follow us at Got the Runs Pod on Twitter. You can email us. Please email us if you do please have. Please email even, us. But if you do email question. us, please just tweet at us to let us know. <laughs> <laughs> And please be nice. Um, Yeah, you have to say something nice if you're going to email, I will say. If you're going to email something, if you can't email something nice, don't email us at all. That's where I'm looking for. Maybe that's why we haven't received any emails. If you can't email something nice, don't tweet it at all. (laughs) (laughs) This is unbelievably stupid. Okay, we are done. (laughs) You can follow me at Jen on Twitter. You can listen to my other podcasts, uh, High Floor, Low Sea and bevy of bevies um happy annegation to all those who celebrate uh watching animated films and uh, lgbtq plus uh cinema this month okay this one is month the before main pride thing. month yes uh it is both animation and it is gay <laughs> was it originally just going to be gay do i recall gay was floated and you know people people sometimes people want to do more than one month and it's fine 
Um, so I guess you can watch Mitchells versus the Machines or something. <laughs> yeah, how much LGBTQ animation is out there? There's there's a fair amount. I'm I actually am halfway through Flea right now, which is another piece of LGBTQ animation. So go watch Flea. You don't know Flea? No. It's like Oscar nominated. It's like this animated documentary. Oh, this is the one with Hot Priest. That's actually very rude. It's about a guy who fled from Afghanistan and his whole family was killed. Ooh, it's animated, you say? It is animated. Um, and, yeah, so everyone go watch Flea. Uh, oh, that oh one... F-L-E-E. I did actually yeah. think it was F-L-E-A. <laughs> but until next time, <laughs> to, to be, be continued. continued. Oh, boy. Yeah.